Yeah, the revelations now televised. Uh, a platform for you and I. And now look with full heart and clear eyes. Now, these are just my thoughts. Truth on how I feel with these topics I reveal. Please know my toll, I always keep it real. Can't face the world if you can't face facts. For your time, just open up your mind. That's it, just live, think big. Now take that. With God in me, this here was made by design. Yeah, the revelation will be televised. Revelations. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Revelations podcast. It's your boy Rev. I am here. I am happy to interview someone. But before we get to that, before you even know who I'm interviewing, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Give the thumbs up um, on any of those places where you can say, hey, I like this. And more importantly, share it, share with people, share with people. If you want to contact me or the show, please follow us on all the social media platforms at the Revelations Podcast. You can also email the show directly just at revelationspodcast at gmail.com. Who am I interviewing today? What is today's verse about? Today's verse is about excellence and doing things with excellence. And I am interviewing Dr. O.J. Shabazz. He's an author, a mentor, and a renowned minister. He wrote a book called Excellence in Ministry. You can find that book on anywhere you can find books. Excellence in Ministry, A Guide to Protocols and Etiquette for Church Leaders. Um, this book is is really about how to do things with eth- ed, um, excellence, the protocols and etiquette of excellence. So you can go check that out, find it again on Amazon. You can also go to his website directly, which is excellenceinministry.org. You can buy the book right there, $25 book that covers all shipping and handling. Help this brother out because he's definitely helping us out. Um, it's great. I have ordered my copy of the book. I will read it. When, it, when I get it, but just talking to him, I think is going to be great. So who is Dr. Shabazz? Why should we be listening to Dr. Shabazz? Well, Dr. Shabazz has been in the field of ministry for what, almost four decades, a little bit over four decades. He's the minister at the Church of Christ in Harlem. Um, I'll let you learn more about him from him as I begin to interview him today, but I think you'll enjoy the, the show. I hopefully... I'll enjoy the interview. I'm quite sure I will, but let's get to it. Let's learn about excellence with Dr. OJ Shabazz. Okay, welcome back to the welcome back to the Revelations podcast. I'm here with Dr. Olu Shabazz. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to be with you. Yes, I'm excited about this conversation because we will be talking about some things that are near and dear to my heart and everybody has some experience with. But before we dive in, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? People heard about you in the intro, but I think it's better if they can hear it directly from the person who who will be speaking. So let us know a little bit about you, your background, and you know just how you became the great man that you are today. Well, I want to express my appreciation once again for being here. I was born and reared in Pontiac, Michigan, a little small town right outside of Detroit. And uh, as a youth, I was reared in a um, in a Muslim home. My father was a Muslim, very devout Muslim. And of course, when you're a child, you are what your parents are. You don't have a chance to you know exercise your own faith and convictions and so forth. And at a very young age, probably uh, about uh, 21, 22, 
I kind of went on a journey to study the Bible and I compared the Bible with the Quran and uh, the teachings that I had been reared under. And long story short, uh, not too far up the road, I converted to New Testament Christianity. Shortly after that, uh, at which time I was working at General Motors Corporation, I decided to take a leave, uh, educational leave of absence and felt that the call of ministry was over my life. And I went to school to do my bachelor's in biblical studies. And while in Memphis, Tennessee, um, engaged in my first, what I call uh, located ministry, somebody, some people call it their first church. Uh, I've had a wonderful, wonderful uh, journey. I really have. I've been preaching now for about 42 years. It's been my good fortune to preach the gospel in about 42 states, six foreign nations. Um, it's been my pleasure to be able to travel all over the United States in revivals, conferences, lecture series, and, and so forth as we teach and expose this ancient text known as uh, the Holy Bible. I currently preach for the Harlem Church of Christ, which is right in the heart uh, of central Harlem. Uh, I've been here now for 23 years. Uh, preached for 12 years in Memphis, Tennessee, six years in my hometown in uh, Pontiac, and then came here to New York City. And um, it's been a great journey. New York City, as you can imagine, is a different animal. Uh, it is. You know what, Timothy? I learned that God has a sense of humor. <laughs> for sure. I was in uh, Pontiac. I, you know, I kind of went to the Lord in prayer. I said, well, I preached in Memphis for you know, 12, 14 years. You know, Lord, is it possible that I might have a, a ministry, just one more ministry in, in a large, in a larger city? And before I knew it, I was in New York City. And I didn't even pay any attention until after some years I've been here. I'm going, wow, God has a sense of humor. Not only did he send me to a big city, he sent me to the biggest city of big cities. Right. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. But I've enjoyed my ministry here, uh, enjoyed uh, the privilege of, of laboring with the uh the good people of New York. We have a very unique congregation in that um, it is not what I'm going to call a community congregation. Our, the majority of our membership does not come from the immediate community. They come from all five boroughs in New York, Bronx, Queens, Long Island, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. as far in one direction as Connecticut, as far as uh, uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, and the other direction. So everyone who's in this congregation is here because they really want to be here. Uh, they, they commute in every Sunday. So yeah, that's you know kind of uh, the long and short of of, uh, of who I am, and I count myself as a servant. Mm, okay, that's the, that's the essence of the calling that's over my life. I talk about this in the book that ministry is fundamentally people serving people. When we dispense with the uh, titles and uh, all of the tags that we have, you know, pastor, bishop, reverend, etc., and I'm not. This is not a theological polemic against those kind of things. I'm saying fundamentally at the at the root of it all, we are all people serving people. Absolutely. I, I, I appreciate that. I have so many questions just from some things you said, but definitely want to talk about the book, uh, Excellence in Ministry, A Guide to Protocols and Etiquette for Church Leaders. Um, this is this is awesome. I have an author on here. I fashion myself as a writer, uh, not published yet, but will be published soon. So I think that's great. Before before we get into that, I want to get into to something you said earlier. You grew up in a, a Muslim home and you converted to Christ. Can you take us through that a little bit, how your family accepted that? Like, how was that? Um, just as some background, because 
I, I think it is proper. It's good to be well versed in multiple religions, and and oftentimes that's how we find out, you know, what is what is true. So, can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So, while my father was a very devout Muslim, my mother never converted to Islam. <laughs> uh, she believed with all of her heart that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and and okay. she um, you know, uh, to the whole notion of of, of Islam. So I had a balance of influence, I'm going to say. While working at General Motors Corporation, I met a young man that I really felt like I, I could identify with. I was young. He was young. He had a young family. I had a young family. I was up and coming in General Motors. He was up and coming in General Motors. And he was a Christian. And so he challenged me to study the Bible. And I got into this process of comparing the Quran to the Bible and reflecting upon my the teachings of my youth and then what I was learning from the Bible and comparing the two. Finally, I became convinced that Jesus Christ was not just one of 700 prophets. Mm -hmm. All prophets. <laughs> yes. To discover that he was the messianic fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 28, and a number of the sugar stick texts that uh, Muslims will use to mm -hmm. point to Allah uh, or to, I'm sorry, to, uh, uh, to Muhammad. And, mm -hmm. and so uh, while Muhammad, uh, uh, rather, while, while Allah did not have a son, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Yes. And uh, yes. His, his name is called Jesus. Matthew chapter one, we learn in the genealogy of mm -hmm. Jesus Christ uh, through the divinic bloodline. And so I became very convicted about Jesus Christ being the long prophesied Messiah. Okay. And I brought up the fact that each time in the New Testament, uh, originally translated from the classical Kone Greek in the English, every time you read the word Christ, you're reading the word Messiah. There and so I became convicted that Jesus uh, was in fact the long prophesied Messiah. There you go. And and how and I appreciate that. Um, I have always grown up in a Christian and family, so I didn't have that huge conversion. So how did your father or how was that? How was that conversation that you had? You know what? He respected it. Oh, um, look at that. That's amazing. I thought it very interesting. I'm not going to say he altogether liked it. <laughs> he felt like I was abandoning uh, mm -hmm. uh, the religion of our people. Mm -hmm. My dad respected it. As a matter of fact, the day that I was installed as minister here at the Harlem Church of Christ in New York City, my dad was present. Hey, look at that. That's awesome. The biggest smile on his face. That is uh, awesome. Times in Pontiac at the Eastside Church of Christ, where I formerly preached before I came to New York, he would just show up. Mm -hmm. And his only criticism, I thought this humorous, his only criticism about my public oration he used to say to me, oh, Lou, let me ask you a question. Why do you have to preach? Why can't you just teach the people? <laughs> <laughs> there is a difference. There is a, there is a big difference. A yes. Big difference. Yes. I am a teacher by trade. I am not, I'm not a preacher. And you, you mentioned the word labor, um, that you, that you labor, that this thing is, is, is it's work. I like that. It's it's this 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 is work. So talk to me about the work of ministry. What is people hear the word minister, people hear the word ministry, but I think oftentimes we throw these words around and people don't really know 
what it what it means. Right. So can you explain ministry? Um, because again, your book is excellent in excellence in ministry. We understand what excellence means. What is ministry as a as a concept? You know, so so let's go down that path a little. So let me let me digress and provide a couple of definitional perspectives that I think will really bring some clarity to this. Well, I think we all have a grasp of the etymology of the word excellence or what that word means and why it comes to me. But, but the book goes a little different, a little deeper. Okay. I, I provide what I call an excellence paradigm. And the position is the God of the Bible is the quintessential example of excellence. He is the very embodiment of excellence. And he warrants... Uh, I believe he deserves, he desires, and he demands to be imitated. As, as he exudes everything God does, he does with excellence. We can think of absolutely nothing with mm. which God does not do with superiority, going above and beyond, giving the very best. And so the notion of excellence really identifies the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then when we talk about ministry, ministry, again, is fundamentally people serving people, which innately demands work and labor. I, I believe in a thing that I call the threefold mission of, uh, of the local church. And it is the proclamation of the ancient texts, the teaching of the gospel, mm -hmm. of benevolence, and edification or the building up of the existing members of the body of Christ. All of that takes work. It takes labor. We're now extending ourselves beyond standing at the back door, shaking hands, kissing babies, being the local PR man for the congregation. We're talking about boots on ground, getting in the trenches and working and laboring as you preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you uh, serve those who are disenfranchised, those who are um, uh, unfortunate, and then with works that strengthen and fortify and build up and edify. No one should have to go to worship to be torn down. Right. I you agree. ought to be able to worship to, to be built up. So the, the, the endless number of works and labors that can be engaged. So again, it all entails work. One of the things I often emphasize, I think we're in a season where we really need to invest some time in de-emphasizing titles and looking for people with towels. People who have towels are people who perspire. Mm -hmm. And they're perspiring because they're laboring. Mm. Because they're working. It's not the grandeur of a position or a title or perceived authority and influence, but it's really people that are at work. And and I love that you said that because you you also mentioned that you're a servant, and and Jesus served like that that, that like leaders serve. So can you talk about the ministry of service, the the leadership of service that you were that you were mentioning in your opening dialogue there, where it's it. We, we, we think about these positions. I'm, I'm the leader, so I don't have to work. But no, from what I've been taught and what I've learned and what I've read and what I've studied, leaders have to be the biggest servants of the group. Can you speak to that a little bit? 
Absolutely. Every consideration that has to do with leadership relegates to servitude. On one occasion, the disciples had this uh, conversation with Jesus, and he clearly conveyed that the greatest in the kingdom shall be your servants. And so this extends beyond the boardroom where we sit and make decisions and where we navigate the direction of people by exercising our authority. It really relegates to the notion of our engaging people to see what we can do to make provisions for them, uh, albeit spiritual provisions. When I teach, I'm serving God's people. When I preach, I'm serving God's people. When I do funerals, when I do weddings, when I do pastoral counseling, when I do uh, interaction with, with the young population of the church, I am extending myself to serve. I'm emptying myself of any opportunity, any privilege that I can enjoy to their betterment. And that's what service is all about. That is that is awesome. And your your book, The Guides and Protocols of Etiquette in Church Leaders. Church leaders must serve. So though I haven't had the, I'll be honest, you know, I will read the book. I haven't had an opportunity to do so just yet. Um, me and you talked about why, as I'm in the throes of finishing this uh, these classes for this doctorate, it's so hard to read anything else. But I really, I really want to read it. I've I've read the the um, basically the abstract of the book. Sure. So what? So how does the book help church leaders learn to serve excellently or to imitate God, as you were saying, in leadership and ministry? Right. You know what, Timothy, for many, many years in the early uh, formidable years of my ministry, I was driven to be professional. Mm -hmm. I wanted to dress professional. I wanted to do things in a highly professional way. Until I studied the Bible long enough to learn that it is not at all professionalism that I should have been in pursuit of, but excellence. Mm -hmm. Doing all things above and beyond in a superior way. I want people to have that, oh, wow moment. I've never seen things done with that kind of dedication, with that kind of commitment, with that kind of energy. And so excellence becomes the driver. Uh, everything I do, I want to. I want people to have that. Man, I've never seen that done like that before. Or you know, this is outstanding kind of moment. And I believe that that is best executed by a number of best practices that I call protocols. Let me give you a definitional perspective again. Fundamentally, yeah. protocol is simply what you do. Uh, etiquette is how you get it done. Okay. And so I believe that we need to get back to identifying protocols, certain things that we do, the things that we do, the driving force is excellence. And then we have these etiquettes that everyone clearly understands. This is how the protocols are executed. So in the book, I identify 11 protocols. And each one of those protocols are undergirded by three to five recommended uh, etiquettes. Now, what I did, uh, what I was mindful of, there was no way that I could speak to everything I wanted to speak to in this first volume, and God willing, I'll come with volume two. So I did a section in the book of how do you identify, how do you come up with protocols and etiquettes, mm -hmm. even in a church context? Mm -hmm. And my position is this, God is the quintessential example of excellence. 
study him, look at his patterns, precepts, principles, and promises, and then imitate them. Wow. You don't have to necessarily create new laws, but if you just study, God is a God. Let me, let me give you a, a fundamental example. Staring right at us in the New Testament Bible are a, a plethora of letters or epistles. So what does God do? God effectively communicates with the people by using letters. Why don't you imitate mm -hmm. that as a protocol? I try to effectively communicate on behalf of our ministry through letters. That's that's imitating God. If it was good enough for God, it's good enough for me. There it is. And so that's just one of, of many examples of, of just, just study him and look at his pattern. God has got a pattern. Mm -hmm. a perpetual pattern. And I am a student of what is called pattern theology uh, or pattern authority, where you look at the approved scriptural examples, the necessary inferences, and positive and negative divine commands. That is my hermeneutic. Now, I balance that hermeneutic with something that is called an interpretive process known as authorial intent. Authorial intent means when you read the Bible, you want to know what the dude meant when he wrote it. Yes. Not just what you got out of it. Right. But what did he intend for you to get out of it? Absolutely. And so I'm a student of pattern authority, and for a long time I've been studying God's patterns, the way he does things. He had patterns with Israel. He had patterns during patriarchy. And he has patterns that he follows in the New Testament dispensation. Patterns, principles, precepts, and the watch the promises of God. Mm -hmm. And he imitates. When, yeah, I was going to say that. that it, in order to imitate, you have to know the pattern. Exactly. And the pattern is the blueprint. So you you talked about protocols is what we do, and etiquette is how we do it. It's sort of the, the way we get it done. And the etiquette is where the excellence comes from. Like, okay, we have to lead, but let's lead with excellence, and then you provide that. Which makes me think that you wrote the book to... I don't know if right a wrong is the is the right way to say it or to correct something. So what did you see that needed correcting that drove you to writing a book, a guidebook? So you're guiding them. So if, you, if somebody needs to be guided, that means they're lost or they're not where they need to be. So yes. what did you see in church leaders, in church in general, that said that made you say, hey, I need to write something to help people learn the patterns to get them to excellence. Yes. You know what? Two things. Number one, it is categorically undeniable that in the context of the church, there is a massive movement of digression. Ooh, yes. And in, embodied in that digression is our lack for fervor in how we attack tasks and mm -hmm. get them done for the betterment of people. Okay. Other thing is, I see the book being an overt pushback to the postmodernism movement. Uh, postmodernism aggressively seeks to dismantle standards. No such thing as morality, immorality, right or wrong, good or bad. Everything is subjective, and nothing anymore is objective. Mm -hmm. And in in that context there's been a real deterioration of healthy standards mm. by which we achieve. So uh, anyone who's been in and around Shabazz over 42 years, I wear this word out and I always have for 40 something excellence. J 
gentlemen, let's do this with excellence. Sisters, let's do this with excellence. People, let's not just do this, let's do this with excellence. Now here's how we achieve it. We're gonna do A, B, C, D. Everybody understands what we're gonna do. Everyone understands how we're gonna do it, but the driving force is I want you to keep pushing. I want you to excel. I want you to come back to the table saying we did that. And okay. we did it for that. I, I think that I think that's awesome. So it, it sounds like to me you you saw our area of need and you said, hey, you know what, we can do this better. I, I heard this um from Darius Daniels, who I listen to sometimes, and he said, Don't settle with for good when great is available. Right. So if we can do it excellently, let's go for it. And I and I think that's so that's on point. Um and I try that in my life as well. I try to strive for excellence. I have a uh, a letterman's jacket that I've made and I have EWE on that jacket and it means everything with excellence. So that that's that's how I think. I, I want to do everything with excellence and you you want to continue to try. So you you talked about postmodernism of course and it is that is characterized by skepticism and everything is subjective and there's no you're almost wrong for saying somebody is wrong for doing like that's wrong or, yes. or I'm not calling you wrong. I'm calling what you're doing wrong. But now when we do that, we are blasted. Um, and we, we live in a world now where the church or religion, and I, you know what? I don't even think it's religion. I think Christianity, Christ followers are being attacked for our beliefs so you and I talked a little bit before we got on about that. Um, can you touch on what you see are the attacks on God, attacks on the religious space, how people view Christianity as a whole, and more or less, how can we change those views to how we, I'm going to use the air quotes here, should be viewed? Mm -hmm. Well, let me speak to the hearts of your younger audience. In the words of the wise man, Solomon, please know that there is nothing new under the sun. There has never been a time when Christianity or God has not been under attack. Dating back to the time of uh, polytheism, uh, the many world religions, some of which uh, taught uh, the belief in many gods, iconoclasticism, where they worshiped uh, idols and statutes uh, in lieu of God. So I would say to your heart, please know that this is no new phenomenon, that mm -hmm. this did not just happen for the first time in the history of mortal mankind. Yet here we are again, where there is an overt movement to de-emphasize God, de-emphasize spirituality as it is depicted in the ancient text known as the Bible, an attack on what is believed as antiquated rules mm -hmm. about morality and immorality. This very fictitious and empty charge against religion. And, and uh, we don't even have time for me to get into this. Most people have no idea biblically of what religion really is because most people, if they really understood what religion was, they would do everything but attempt to condemn it. But I understand what they're saying. They're talking about the institutionalism that appears uh, among some and so forth. And, and let me just say to you that I do believe that there is a level of being misinformed by the masses 
Mm. And people can't do properly what they don't know. Wow. On the other hand, I think that we have to take some blame internally. And I mentioned this to you earlier. Number one, we should stop teaching people to go to church. Okay. Church is not a location. Mm. Church is made up of people. Yes. God doesn't dwell in, in mortar and brick and stone and glass and pulpits and, and uh, audiovisual equipment. God embodies 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and uh, verse 19. He dwells in people. Yeah. So the idea of corporate assembly, that's really what we're trying to, I know what you mean when you say church. The idea of coming together in a corporate assembly is the byproduct of manifesting that we are community. Mm, wow. Is a called out body of believers over which Christ is head, in which his Holy Spirit dwells. We are truly a spiritual community. And yep. when the community assembles together to manifest our faith in God, in that context, while we're there, we worship. So people view church as a Sunday morning thing where people get dressed up in a tie and suit and dresses and have this very mean, stern look on your face. And you go and sit and kind of wall your eyes at everybody else. And you go through this very ritual, you know, two songs, a scripture, a prayer, a selection, and so forth. You know, get a nip, a sip, give a $2 tip, and you're out the door. And that's church. Yeah. But but that's never what God intended. I stopped a long time ago teaching. We, we go to worship. Number two, I think that we've done a very poor job as ministers, as church leaders, as teachers, as indoctrinators of the word of God to lead people think that somehow Christianity is a meritorious system. And we've taken the Bible to beat people down. And can I ask a question? Can you explain for the audience what you mean by a meritorious system? A meritorious system is a system that you engage so that if you rack up enough rights, then you score. There it is. <laughs> if you follow the pattern and do A, B, C, D, the grand finale is you've arrived. Mm -hmm. So it's a system based on merit. Mm -hmm. And we sing songs about it, whether we realize it or not. I'm going to walk right, talk right, sing right, pray right. You know, we love to sing songs like that. And I'm not saying that we should not walk right, talk right, sing right, pray right. But don't give people the impression that all they have to do is walk right, talk right, sing right, pray. Listen, you are not saved by your own works or your own merits. You're saved by grace. There it is. We can't save ourselves. If we could save ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus. We would need him. We would not need God the Father. We would need the Holy Spirit. We would not need this divine institution in which he has placed salvation, you know, called the kingdom, the body. You, you know, we, we would, and, and, and Timothy, that's the other thing, man. We talk about church, 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 church. Do you realize how many identity earmarks there are in the scriptures for the people of God? Sometimes, First Peter chapter 3, we're called uh, royal priesthood. There are times when First Timothy chapter 2, we're called the household of God. First Corinthians chapter 12, 12 to 25, we are the body of Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, we are the kingdom of God. I mean, I can just go on and on and on. And every one of those designations identifies a trait or a characteristic mm -hmm. that identifies the true people of God. That is awesome. I, I want to just give some stats about, about church 
Uh, I want to I want to stay right here because I have another question. But according to Statsia, where you can get some great statistics about uh, things in the United States, uh, when when asked about going to church or a synagogue or a mosque or any type of religious, you know, uh, building like the the communal the communal building, um, twenty percent of adult Americans in two thousand twenty uh, two said they go every week, ten percent almost every week, about once a month, eleven percent. Um, seldom is less than once a month is 26% and never is 31%. Never is the, the largest. And you, you, you mentioned earlier the role, what has the, what has the churches? Well, when I say the church, the, 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 the people who run the building, the actual, the, what role has that played in turning people off from either going to church or Christianity or God at all, because I think that a lot of times people are so badly churched, especially in their youth, that they boom, that's a bad experience. I don't want to go back. So can you speak to badly like being not maybe you weren't badly churched, but you've seen it happen? Yes. Well, let me tell you something. I think that this is multi layered. I really do. First of all, I think that all of us as church leaders have to enjoy a moment of new self-honesty. We want to blame everything on the byproducts of the pandemic. And we've even developed a post-pandemic uh, rhetoric. We have post-pandemic language, you know, uh, virtual worship. That's an animal of post-pandemic mm -hmm. uh, uh, rhetoric, you, you know, uh, in-person services and, <laughs> and on and on it goes. The truth be told, our churches were dying before the pandemic started. Wow. Wow. There was a serious decline in numbers. And I say this again, I don't mean to be repetitious and redundant. Postmodernism has really taken a foothold in the mentality and in the culture in the United States of America. And we, the subliminal messages are, are, are in our music, it's in movies, it's in television, it's in reality television, everywhere, this notion of de-emphasis. So the church becomes the bad guy. This person who keeps mm -hmm. talking about morality, 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 when people are trying to redefine morality, uh, because morality is now what you choose it to be. Uh, and so people say things like, are you still teaching that? You know, that that's just antiquated. Well, the ancient text may be ancient, but it'll never be antiquated. There it is. Totally agree. In that sense. But I tell you something else I've learned. We're forced into a position now where we have to, I'm going to use a phrase, and I hope you're comfortable with this. I hope our listeners can receive this in the manner in which I intended. We're having to redefine how we do church. There it is. I agree. And I want to tell you why. What it, what has happened to us during the pandemic is people's attention span is shot. It doesn't. I teach high school students. They don't have an attention span. Yes. So the idea <laughs> it doesn't of, exist. Idea of having a two three hour worship service yeah. is is taboo. People are not going to sit still like they did in the old days Ooh. through fifteen songs and a message that's an hour long. Back in the day, my message was 45 minutes, 15 minutes, inviting people to come to Christ. I can't do that anymore. Wow. You've adjusted. They're not, not going to sit there. The other thing is I've had to learn to employ technology because they would rather see it than hear it. Mm. Okay. So I'm having to use, um, uh, I, I'm having to use uh, the drop screens where I have PowerPoint presentations and that kind of thing. People are more visual now. 
-hmm. and that helps retain their attention more. If I stand there and teach and lecture, I don't care how you jump up and down, how animated you are, holler and scream and shout, in short order, you're going to lose their attention. Wow. So I've learned that that has to change. You don't have to change what is done in the context of worship. But you do have to uh, maybe reinvent your approach to it. Can I tell you something, Tim? Please, please, please. I love this. Please. Into a guy who's very, very anti-social media. Yes. And for about three years before the pandemic, my leaders would come to me and say, Shabazz, can we go Facebook Live this morning? And I'm going, absolutely not. Oh, wow. Okay. Absolutely not. But doc, there are people all over the country that want to hear you. I don't care. They need to come here if they want to hear me, right? My focus is this ministry and speaking to and teaching and developing and helping mature these people. So I wouldn't do it. And then the pandemic hit. And let me tell you an experience I had. The last Sunday in March, I don't know if you're aware of this, the last Sunday in March 2020, the internet crash i was not aware back and do your research the last sunday in the month of march the internet crashed and it crashed because there were so many people on the internet preaching the gospel that the couldn't hold it wow and facebook crashed youtube crashed <laughs> all of them crashed there were too many people on and I flipped out. I'm going, oh my, what are we gonna do? At that point in New York City, as in many other places, public assembly was banned. Yes. We did not come together in a public assembly and we were duty bound to make our contribution to a healthy country by not bringing people together and making them sick. So I panicked, but that Sunday, I learned the value of the internet. Now, let me tell you this real quick. We spend an exuberant amount of money every year to host what is called the Northeast Regional Lectureship. Okay. In that lectureship, it lasts Sunday to Wednesday night. We have a total of about eight speakers. They come from all over the United States. It costs us an exuberant amount of money. I'm just going to tell you. I'm just going to tell you what it costs. It costs us between 10 and 14 grand. Wow. Yeah. So along comes the internet. And during the time when we could not have in-person services, I did that same Northeast lectureship via the internet. Whereas usually about 1,400 people will be present in the building during that week to hear 14,000 people. Look at that. Saw it. And it cost us $4,000. <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. I, I what a challenge. You know, I, I think it's great. I heard that, you know, people said that, you know, Satan is trying to use the pandemic to shut down all the churches. And this man said, actually, there were churches opened in every home now because there were so many more people that had access because everybody went online. I want to touch on something that you mentioned um, about, uh, you know, we need to redo church. And I love what you said about how you've adjusted your sermons used to be 45 minutes with a 15 minute altar call, but you've adjusted because you know your audience, you know the people won't be able to sit through that. And I believe a part of the reason 
um, people are quitting going to church and and even the religion as a whole is because of this statement. People don't quit job, they quit managers. I do believe that the leadership is the reason why so many people are walking away because like you said, it, it's being preached that we have to, what'd you say? Pray right, preach right, sing right, you know, that type of thing that you have to be perfect. And people are like, I can't do that. I don't have a chance. I can't do that. I've accepted the fact that I can't do that and I'm and I'm going to walk away. So going back to your book about the excellence in ministry, a guidebook to protocols and etiquette for church leaders, what can leaders do, church leaders do to change, I don't know, change their ways or change the narrative around God? Because there's a negative narrative around God right now. Um, if you say the word Jesus, you're almost cussing somebody out. There's a visceral and hatred toward the name. So I would then look to my leaders. I would point to my leaders and say, what can be done to begin to reverse that? Yeah. You know what? I don't know that the problem is really how people view God, how they view Christ, as much as it is how we have depicted them. Wow. Okay. Erroneous depiction can really be a turnoff to people. I really think also that... Um, that we, we must invest in, in the context of excellence. We must go back to investing in people. Yep. One of the things I love about the notion of protocols and etiquettes is it gives me an opportunity to empower people through the power of delegation. Okay. You know, Timothy, too many churches are mom and pop operation. <laughs> it's everything's ran by mom and pop. Yep. And, that's a that's that's a formula for failure, and mm. we don't we don't graft in the myriad of talent and ability and desire that we have sitting in the pews to give them a feeling of ownership. There it is of involvement. That I'm really I'm not just coming here, but I'm making a concerted contribution to something. So leaders have to discover the power of delegating duties, obligations, responsibilities to competent, capable people so that they buy into ministry and at the same time, help them discover their purpose. There it is. There it is. I, I agree with that. I think oftentimes that um, church leaders, I don't know if it's a, hmm, I don't know if it's an insecurity, but they almost don't want to delegate because that's almost giving the power away, if you will. And and we like the oldest leaders are in the church. People don't mind stepping down and passing businesses off in all of this, but we don't have the youth isn't involved. And 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 I believe a part of it is because the leaders aren't investing in the youth and giving youth responsibility. People want to feel needed, they want to feel wanted, and they want to feel purposed. And giving them busy work isn't it. Give them something for real that they can do, that they can have ownership, and then they can. They can begin to um, invest more in the church and growing the kingdom of God. And so the the protocol, I want to get back to the book one more time. The, the, the guide, the guidebook to protocols and etiquette for church leaders. So what would you say is the greatest responsibility of church leaders? If you had to like say, you know what? This is what church leaders, this is our responsibility. This is what we should be doing to not only exude excellence, but here's the key. Teach other people how to 
have excellence as well. So this system of excellence can continue. Yes, I can give it to you in one word. It's there called it training. Say it one more time. It's called training. Training, there it is. Our biggest responsibility is training. Do you not know that the major component of teaching is training? Mm -hmm. And from training comes development. Yeah. Now, you need to make that uh, a household uh, uh, environment. Let me, let me say something to you about environment. And here's what happens to the church. If you're not careful about your environment, mm -hmm. environment will soon become a climate. Okay. Soon your climate will become an atmosphere. And then your atmosphere will soon become a culture. Wow. And when people seek to determine what you're all about, they look at your culture to judge you. So we must be more guarded about our environment. And an environment must be about perpetual training and development, getting people involved, showing them the ropes. This is how you do it. This is the which way you go. Use your unique giftedness and ability and talent. You know what I've often said to our leaders? I have no interest in being the smartest guy at the table. That's not what this is about. I don't need, I'm not, I don't need, I am a, I am a, I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my expertise. I don't need to be the smartest guy. I just need to be at the table with smart people. Seriously. And if you Seriously. use your purpose, your purpose, your purpose, your talent, your ability, all I'm asking, all Dr. Shabazz is asking is that we do it with excellence and give me some how we gonna do it. And here's the rules and regulations where everybody understands it. And you understand before you walk away that we're gonna do this in a way where people are gonna be left with a wow kind of moment. There it is. I, I love that, that, you know, I've heard some things like, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need a new room, right? Like, like you know, you don't, you don't need that. But you know, there, there's something that you say, and I you've been saying it the entire time. You say um, our leaders, not my leaders. You say we, and that's so inclusive. And it does show that shared power and that that you are cultivating other leaders, our leaders. I, I love those, those type of things. And I think that that's what it's about. It is about training. So you're, if you have, you're not just the leader. I am the leader of the church. It is me. No, you say our leaders and you say we, and then sitting, you said sitting at the table, not standing over everybody else. Um, I, I think that is, I think that's excellence. And I think the way that you're approaching your, your, your teaching and your trainings is something that I know I would be able to jive with because again, it is inclusive it is not only top down, but you have set a standard and excellence is the standard. And the standard is the standard. It is what it is. This is the bar. And I believe, I mean, as a teacher, as somebody who works with, with youth, high school students, if you set the bar and just tell them that's the bar, I'm not changing it. They will get to it. <laughs> they'll, they'll kick, they'll cry, they'll scream. I can't, I can't, I can't. Yes, you can, because I'm not changing it. So I, I think you're doing an excellent job there as well. Yeah, so I know that you need to quickly uh, summarize, but I, I, I keep speaking about the notion of excellence being, uh, God being the quintessential example of excellence and 
his deserve, uh, you know, that we imitate him through his patterns, precepts, uh, promises, and principles. Have you ever noticed the resounding overt presence of team? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's a team. Jesus comes, I'm sorry, patriarchy. There are 12 tribes, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Dan, Nephilim, Gad, Asher, Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh. And there's a father over all 12 tribes, but they work together as a team. Had you not noticed that in the Christian, or rather when Christ comes on the scene, he chooses 70 and he sends those 70 out under the limited commission uh, two by two. Wow. Had you noticed know, Great Commission, he chooses 12 and he trains 12 disciples. And when he goes back to heaven, they graduate from the disciples to becoming apostles. And mm -hmm. then Paul goes out with Barnabas and John Mark. It's team, 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 team. We've got to imitate that to achieve wow. that. Wow. And he set a pattern for us to imitate. I think I think that is awesome. No, I, I do. And it is about team. It's not about I, it's about we and, and greatness. So Dr. Shabazz, where can people, I like, I know where people can find your book, but I want you to talk about it, talk about your website and all that good stuff before we get out of here. Yes, I want to thank the masses for the, the over-resounding reaction to this book, uh, but I'd like to ask you to please go to my landing page. It is excellenceinministry.org. All one word, no spaces, and there on the landing page, you'll see a button that you could hit that says buy now. And uh, the book is $25 that covers shipping and handling the whole nine yards. And I'll be happy to send you your personal copy and welcome you to the excellence movement. I, I think that is awesome. I'm definitely going to get my copy. This is also available on um, Amazon. It has It's available on Kindle as well. So you can get this book. I'm definitely going to um, read this book because, like I said, in my Letterman jacket, everything with excellence, I want to learn how to live ex excellent. I want the protocols. I want to be excellent, right? So I have the desire, but I want to be excellent. And since I am in leadership, um, I want to know. And even if my ministry is not in a church, I will still be able to glean from this on how to be an excellent leader to, to other people. So Dr. Shabazz, I thank you so much for coming on. I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. Uh, I have a, I have a big smile. I'm not a smile. I don't smile a lot, but I've been smiling this entire conversation just because, um, of your, your presence. I can feel your passion. Um, I can hear your, your intelligence. I can hear your excellence and, and your desire to produce other excellent beings. So thank you so much. And everybody, please again, go to Dr. Shabazz's website, his, his landing page again, excellenceinministry.org. It's all one word again, excellenceinministry, all one word.org. Please be a supporter and not just a fan. Share this. Also share this podcast with other people, share this YouTube video with other people. Um, and, and let's, let's help him help us become excellent. Um, anyway, again, you can contact me on all the social media platforms at the Revelations Podcast. That's on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. You can also email me at revelationspodcast at gmail.com. Dr. Shabazz, again, thank you so much. I like to end by saying this. I am because we are. Um, you know, the only reason I'm, I'm like this is because I have people who are backing me, my family and my friends and people who love me. So I always want to give them a shout out at the end. But Dr. Shabazz, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless, man. All right, thank thank you. you. All right. Bye-bye.